Hello, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer, and I'm here with Mike Fernandez. Mike, welcome back from our summer hiatus. Yeah, it's great to be back. So today on The Crux, we're going to tackle a subject that's been widely discussed this summer, and that's conspiracy theories and how they're accelerating in number, but also in the damage that they're doing to all facets of life in the United States. Many of you this summer probably followed the civil trial of the extreme right-wing podcaster Alex Jones, who was sued by parents of children killed by a gunman at Sandy Hook Elementary School, Newtown, Connecticut, in 2012. In the aftermath of that event, that massacre, really, Jones' podcast became a clearinghouse for cruel and crazed conspiracy theories that claimed the massacre was a quote-unquote false flag staged to undermine gun rights in America. After hearing the evidence, a jury recently ordered Jones to pay nearly $50 million to two Sandy Hook parents for his lies about that event. Journalism professor Amanda J. Crawford of the University of Connecticut considers Sandy Hook and its repercussions as the first major conspiracy theory of the social media age. She also believes that we can trace our current predicament, a misinformation emergency, to the tragedy's aftermath. Amanda's our guest today on The Crux. She's a veteran political journalist and academic researcher who focuses on journalism ethics, media law, misinformation, and the role of journalists in a democracy. Amanda is writing a book about the fight for the truth after Sandy Hook, entitled Truth for the Dead. And this week, uh, the Boston Globe magazine published Amanda's emotional and powerful story on one family's fight against Sandy Hook conspiracies, Alex Jones, and others. It's an admirable piece of reporting and writing that honestly is frustrating, maddening, and gripping to read. Mike and I will talk to Amanda about her article and about the larger issue of the misinformation crisis in America, which, as I said, has damaged business, government, public health, and even democracy itself. Amanda, welcome to The Crux. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Thank you for having me. So first, if you if you don't mind, there's just this powerhouse story that's in the globe under your byline about one set of Sandy Hook parents. Uh, they're the focus of the story and their son, Noah. If you just tell us the story, how you came to pick them to tell their story among the Sandy Hook parents and what happened since in the past 10 years to this family. Well, um, I was really interested in telling the story about that you, that fight for misinformation and that journey that I could tell years ago would be a defining moment um, in our growing misinformation crisis in this country. I became aware of, of Lenny Posner's work, and he was unique among um, relatives of Sandy Hook victims and that he almost immediately within a year of the shooting was starting to fight and combat the conspiracy theories head on. And that is something that, you know, early on, a lot of families and, and survivors really hoped that this these ludicrous conspiracy theories would go away, that they would die down when news about the shooting died down, that the next shooting would take away, you know, the focus. And it really didn't. And so Lenny Posner saw that coming, saw that this was not going to go away, and that he really had to fight um, for the legacy of his child. 
as I got to know um, his now ex-wife as well, Veronique, she was really early on in calling for gun policy reform as well. So I found that really intriguing. She was one of the first um, relatives to speak out really strongly, calling for a renewal of the assault weapons ban and for um, federal gun laws to change. And she was a very eloquent spokesperson um, in that way from the tragedy, but that made her family a target. Um, from the conspiracy theorists. And so I really liked, you know, the idea of telling their story and through them being able to get this larger issue, the larger issues of our, our dual crises of mm -hmm. shootings, of gun violence, of mass shootings, but also of misinformation and conspiracy theories. Thank you for that. Uh, just real quickly, uh, Amanda, tell us about Noah, who was the youngest of the victims in Sandy Hook and it's such a really, as you can imagine, emotional part of your reporting and storytelling. Tell us a little bit about Noah. So Noah was had just turned six years old um, at the time of the shooting. He was six years and three weeks old. Um, they had just celebrated he and his twins' sixth birthday before the shooting. Um, so both of his sisters, his one, his, he has a twin sister who was in a different first grade class and an older sister who was in the second grade. And so all three of them went to school that morning, um, and Noah's class was one of two that were um, hit by the shooter. I, I like that when you talk to um, Lenny about his son, he'll right away always say he was a regular little boy, which, you know, it's, it, it, it is just what do we say about children that are that young? He loved Batman, and he joked with his sisters that he worked at night in a taco factory while they were asleep. You know, he was a, a jokester and, and uh, Lenny tells about the story and I talk about it in, in my story that um, on his, the day of the shooting, Lenny dropped his kids off at school and they were all singing to Noah's favorite song, which was Gangnam Style by um, you know, the K-pop <laughs> artist. Uh, and, and interestingly, which was the first video to get a billion views, I think, on YouTube. So you see that intersection of our social media rise at the same time. But uh, Lenny and the kids were singing along to that song on the way to school and just had a, a great little morning um, before tragedy struck. Um, so Noah is, is always a part of, you know, the story when you talk to the Posners. And, and certainly I tried to convey that in my writing, too, that um, both of them found inspiration in his memory and, um, and wanting to keep that alive. Yeah. Yeah, Amanda. I mean, there's. I mean, it's so heart wrenching, and and you know, you think about the impact on individual lives. But what do you think is, you know, what really made this event, uh, the shootings at Sandy Hook, ripe for conspiracy theorists? You know, why do you think a tragedy like this engendered so many lives, lies, and hoaxes? Well, I think one thing that I thought was interesting from the beginning is if you just it just pure timing is, is one factor mm -hmm. for sure. And so if we look at what was happening in 2011 and 2012, you see that social media use became ubiquitous in 2012, at the same time of the shooting. It's the very first year that more than half of all Americans use social media. Um, so we're not talking about just, you know, Internet active Americans. We're talking about all American adults, more than half. Um, we're using social media platforms for the first time that year. So we see social media really coming of age um, at the time of the shooting. Um, at the same time, we see historic levels of distrust. And so, you know, I, 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 as, you, as you well, both of you might as well, Gallup does annual polls on, on trust and distrust of the mainstream media or the mass media. And if you look at those charts, which I show my students every year, you know, 2012 was, was a real bottom. That was a historic low. And Gallup has been tracing this for decades. Um, but when we got to 2012, trust in the mass media had really plummeted. But you also see institutional distrust growing, um, a, a large, you know, anti-government patriot movement evolving at that time too. Mm -hmm. And guns are a divisive issue in this country that really speak to the heart of our polarization. It, it's a very defining, you know, trait as far as where we find ourselves in the political spectrum. 
And there have always been a lot of conspiracy theories, a history of American conspiracy theories evolving around guns, the government coming to take our guns, and that being the step towards us being taken over by the New World Order or the UN or whatever boogeyman they like they, they like to ascribe that to, right? So, so which you kind of have this just moment where social media is ripe, where distrust is high. And then you have a string of high profile shootings. I'm from, I was living in Arizona when, um, during, during the Newtown shooting, but also, um, I, I covered the shooting of Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords in Tucson in 2011. And if you look at like the major mass casualty shootings, we see a spate of shootings. We see the Tucson shooting, which was obviously extremely high profile because it was one of the only times a you know member of Congress has been shot, which has only happened a few times in our country's history. Um, and so, and, and you know, uh, several other people died. Um, and so, you had this, that tragedy, which you know inspired a lot of of activism around gun policy reform. And then you see going into 2012 another spate of them. We had the Aurora shooting, which I covered for Bloomberg News in Colorado, um, and that happened in July of 2012. There was a shooting at a Sikh temple in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and um, I think it was early fall of 2012. And then you have the Sandy Hook shooting. And these three shootings happen within six months of each other. And they're very high profile. They're devastating. They're in our places where we're supposed to feel safe, at a movie theater, you know, at a religious um, center, at, um, at school, at elementary school. And so when you get to the Newtown shooting, it was just devastating. It was the most horrific example of this horrific mm-hmm. event that is happening over and over again in America's public places. I am quite aware, and I study gun violence, you know, that, that incidents of, that, that gun violence in general is, is much bigger of an issue than just mass shootings. But mass shootings are where we see this uniquely American horror. Um, and we saw these three in a row. So mm-hmm. by the time we get to Newtown, it is just, Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's, the, the interest is extreme. The emotions are high. It is a shocking tragedy. It, it's so shocking that some people just didn't want to believe it's true. And that, that's the people I ascribe the less nefarious motives to. I think there are people who, who did just want to believe it wasn't true. Um, but it was really horrifying. And it did lead to a surge of conversation about how to reform what are really nonsensical federal gun laws. And so the the pushback there um, was immediate. Mm-hmm. The conspiracies were kind of already existing and bubbling up on the fringe. Mm-hmm. Um, we had seen similar kind of conspiratorial chatter around other mass shootings. So I brought up the Aurora shooting. There was speculation by Jones and others that that shooter was under mind control by the government. So again, a deep state operative killing people in a movie theater for the government, apparently, is their idea. And that was kind of built around the idea that he was a, that the shooter was a neuroscience grad student. Um, so that kind of built that thread. So you already see these kind of things bubbling up and, and a long history of people calling things, you know, false flags by the government. Mm-hmm. And so you already have that existing chatter, I think, on, on the margins. And then this extremely high profile shooting that really hits on every emotional target and then you had the media, you know, and, and I've been a member of the media, the national media coming in to cover a, a mass shooting in a town. And um, we can be overwhelming and our coverage can be salacious and it can be inundating and it's everywhere. And so and that engenders its own um, pushback from those who distrust and dislike the American media. So what, what strikes me listening to all of this is that was 10 years ago, right? And, and, and has it gotten any better is one question. And then two, you know, what's the media's responsibility in all of this? So I would say that some things have gotten better, but a lot has remained unchanged. And, and I think that's in part because this is just a, a really tough thing for any kind of uniform response by, you know, that, that hard to pin down, uh, you know, idea of the media, right? Yeah, yeah, so, right. Because um, it's changing every day. Yeah, we have many more channels than than we had ten years ago. Right. 
and, and, and so there are many more opportunities for even honest mistakes, let alone, um, you know, the seeds for some conspiracy. Well, let me talk about the honest mistakes first, because I think that's where we're seeing somewhat improvement among the media. And it's also really at the key of why Sandy Hook became this magnet for conspiracy theorists. And so I don't think, I mean, there's been a, just a crush of coverage about the Sandy Hook conspiracy theories. But one of the things my research has focused on is the media's role. And so in my Globe piece, I try to lay out really some of the mistakes that the media made and their rush to cover this horrific tragedy that became the basis for conspiracy theories, the real building blocks. And so in the story, I lay out how, you know, the, the shooter was misidentified. Uh, journalists um, listened to a tip from someone. It was unconfirmed information. And most major media outlets ran with the wrong name of the shooter for hours on the day of the shooting. For hours, they named an innocent man a mass killer. It was the actual shooter's older brother um, was the wrong name. Um, they misidentified the shooter's mother as a teacher at the school, and that wasn't corrected for days. And that mistake lingered so long that it still persists today. People will still talk about his mother being a teacher. She was not. She had never been a teacher. And she was killed at home, not at the school. That was not a reason he targeted the school, as was originally, originally reported. Um, the gun was reported wrong. Um, tips about the gun that was used were reported wrong, and that wasn't cleared up for days either. And that, you know, especially with the concerns about um, propaganda related to, to guns that could be used to pass gun control measures, that was a significant error on journalists' parts. Um, so, Amanda, was that was the mistake because of information provided by local authorities, or was or were these just mistakes made by reporters? I think it's both. I mean, when an off-the-record source who is not the primary source of information gives you an unvetted tip, and you run with it, it's both of your mistakes. But these were not official mistakes. There was one official spokesman for the investigation, and um, this information did not come from him. Um, it came from other people. And so, yeah, it could have been local officials. It could have been cops on the ground. It could have been, you know, who knows? I, I certainly don't know all the unnamed sources. Yeah. But ultimately, it's on journalists to not screw this up as bad as they did after Sandy Hook. And so, you know, you can go back and look at, at a lot of the media critiques and the media analysts that looked at the mistakes about a week or two after Sandy Hook. And, you know, they all say things like the media got every fact, every single one wrong at some point in this reporting. Um, we saw echo chambers where the media would report something wrong hmm. and someone would hear it through TV or the Internet. And then they'd be interviewed by another reporter and they would repeat it. And so we saw these things like just creating a lot of misinformation about this shooting that never went away. And it also really never went away with the internet. The internet remembers forever. And so every single mistake I just described to you um, that journalists made, and there were so many more, still live in articles all over the web. So at any time you want to argue that the shooter's mom was really a teacher, you can find tons of articles on news websites that do not have corrections appended. There was a con man who showed up. He was the first YouTuber promoting a conspiracy theory. And he showed up the first weekend and he pretended to be the shooter's uncle. And a whole bunch of reporters, photographers, reporters, just took his word that he was the shooter's uncle. And if you go to Getty Images today, and you could still find his photo labeled as the uncle of the shooter. And these things have never been corrected. And so um, it became really obvious early in my research that this was the basis for the conspiracy theories. Now, wow. certainly, these folks um, you know, who, who perpetuate this misinformation will grasp onto anything they can. And so if these mistakes didn't exist and the journalism coverage was perfect, I'm certainly not saying that there wouldn't be conspiracy theories. But man, they have a lot of ammunition where they can just every single time they want to make a nonsense video, they can find a clip of a TV news reporter reporting on air that there were multiple shooters. 
and that shadows were seen and that other shooters were arrested and that there were other crime scenes. And they can find those clips and they can find those articles and they can argue with them all the Mm -hmm. time. And they still do 10 years later, despite the amount of debunking, no matter how much journalists have corrected the record, they still today will say, but why? Why did the media report that the mom was a teacher? And you just go, because they messed up. It was breaking news. And so for journalists too, also that same intersection, social media was new. There was a lot of junk that reporters, rumors that reporters are throwing out there on Twitter. Um, Because again, we were really early in that rush to report for social media and the the new media landscape. Well, along these lines, Amanda, could you help us understand sort of the art of the hoax? So how did it go? How did it become uh, Sandy Hook? What was done, you know, and you do use the word hoaxers and others do as well. How did it go from that day? How, how do they create the conspiracy? I'm looking for a little bit of the art of what they do, because I think we can all learn from it for those of us who are interested in the truth. Well, they immediately latch on to what they will always call anomalies. And so those anomalies. So every mistake in media coverage is an anomaly. Yep. And then they say, well, there's all these anomalies that you just can't add up. And therefore, if it was true, none of these anomalies would exist. That's kind of the argument, right? Um, And so that's what you see from the earliest moments. You see that, you know, the story is changing. They'll say, why is the story changing? It's all these anomalies. It can't possibly be true. Then they start analyzing what everyone is doing on camera and what everyone is saying in the media. And they look for things to support really their preconceived notions. I mean, we can't, we can't pretend like motivated reasoning isn't coming to play here. It's generally not a person who's like way supportive of gun control, who is deciding to look at the anomalies of a mass shooting to see if it's fake. It's someone who has a, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a preset mindset that there is a deep state that is trying to take their guns away and might be capable of doing something like faking the massacre of a whole bunch of children. And so there's kind of a a preconceived um, distrust of the media and government at play. And so they're looking for those things and then exploiting these anomalies that they found to just continually, uh, you often hear folks say, ask questions. They wanna ask questions, but their questions are denying reality. Um, denying it. And it doesn't really matter how much you go back, they kind of cling to that. And, and so it's it's the idea that the government would stage this and, you know, there, there have been real false flags in our world where governments have done things to um, control a narrative or for propaganda purposes. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a segment of our country that believes a whole lot of things are false flags. And after Sandy Hook, we saw that applying to all of the tragedies. Yeah. You know, there was an interesting uh, cover story of, in all places, uh, National Geographic some years ago that, that focused on even the lack of people believing in basic science. You know, that some people still thought that the earth was flat, that we never landed a man on the moon. There's a whole list of things. And and you even quote in, in one of your writings that, and I think it was from a survey or poll done in 2013, that nearly a quarter, nearly 25% of Americans thought there was a conspiracy associated with the Sandy Hook shootings. How is that even possible? Well, I think, you know, I'm not an expert on conspiracy theories outside of my own research. You know, it's not, not generically the hist- historian of conspiracy theories. But, um, you know, we those folks who are will say that there is a certain percentage of our population that is just um, has that conspiratorial mindset. And I've seen estimates of it being like 20% or something. Um, So you do have folks who are just more apt than others to believe conspiracy theories. That poll was, was really fascinating to me because of its timing. And it came out, you know, six months after the shooting, just as gun policy reform was failing at the federal level, it had stalled and um, was not going to happen. And the conspiracy theory about Sandy Hook had mainstreamed. And this poll came out right at that time. 
And you might have noted that I, I, I noted this in the Globe article, but when it came out, it was kind of dismissed like, there's no way, there's no way that one in four people don't think this shooting happened. And it was just that was just based off, you know, like this idea, like, how is that possible? And also there was a huge number of people in that survey who said they thought an insurrection was necessary in the United States. And that seemed absurd. And I, I would say that really almost until January 6, 2021, that idea seemed fairly distant um, until it happened. But um, my argument has long been that you've seen this thread, yeah. this thread of conspiratorial mindset and distrust of the government media really going back to Sandy Hook and evolving in a way that took us the whole way to January 6th. This episode and other episodes of The Crux are made possible by Boston University's College of Communication, or COM as it's known. COM is BU's home for the study of advertising, emerging media, film and television, journalism, media sciences, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash com. Uh, you even quote Fairleigh uh, Dickinson, a professor, who said that if reality doesn't fit what you want it to be, you have to change what you believe or you have to change reality. Is, is this why objective facts, like watching something on television, looking at photos, eyewitness testimony, even birth certificates, fail to convince hoaxers? There's, there's like this preconditioning. You know, we all want to believe the music man. You're quoting um, Dan Casino from Fairleigh Dickinson University, who um, studies motivated yeah. reasoning. And that's how he described what motivated reasoning is. Um, this idea that mm -hmm. you are willing to discount reality. And when he did that poll in 2013, he told me that his whole intention was to see how far motivated reasoning would push someone on the issues of guns. Would it push them to believe a, a massacre that was really covered so much in the media? That was part of the problem. Like it was so much coverage that that wasn't real or that it was that they were so motivated by their belief in, in, in gun rights that they would they would think that something like an uprising was necessary, an insurrection was necessary. And so that's why he conducted that poll. Mm -hmm. And because of the, in part because of the doubts about it, because it was kind of blasted, um, I don't I don't know that that everyone you know took it very seriously that that was what we were dealing with in this country. That many people certainly the social media platforms didn't take it seriously and didn't do anything about it in 2013. Um, he conducted that same, a very similar question in a poll three years later in 2016 and found the same results. Still, it was one in four. It was right after the Pulse shooting and he found, he asked again about Sandy Hook and found that one in four, again, believed it was a conspiracy. That's a large segment of our population. I, I always think about like there, there are that, you know, extremist group, the, what is it, the three percenters who believe that there's only requires 3% of Americans to overthrow the government. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we're talking about a fourth that believe, you know, this mass shooting was staged and probably a slightly less percentage. Um, I've heard estimates um, of 20 percent that believe every mass Pretty shooting staged, was staged. Yeah. Wow. And, and that seems to me to be a big portion of the population when you're talking about how do we deal with public policy exactly. and, and address the crisis. And they don't stop, and I'm referring here to hoaxers, conspiracists, whatever you want to call them. They don't stop with just, quote unquote, raising questions. No. I mean, they are, they go after, in your case, in this remarkable story, the Posners themselves, mm -hmm. uh, threatening them, threatening in, in some cases. Tell us about that and tell us what role Alex Jones played in all of that. Well, what we see happening with the Sandy Hook hoax conspiracy theory and then a whole bunch of conspiracy theories that have followed is we see regular, ordinary people being painted as villains in these horrific plots, right? Um, and, and when I talk about the importance of the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory at the start of this um, conspiracy theory crisis, that's, that's part of, of my reasoning there, which is that when you see conspiracy theories that became popular in the United States prior to Sandy Hook, so if you think of like the John F. Kennedy assassination or 
there are a lot of questions about the you know the government's role and, and the media and everything else but there, there's no um targeting of ordinary americans and and i've had people you know dispute this before and say well the, the kennedy family was really hurt by those those allegations that there, there was a conspiracy behind his assassination sure but first off they're not ordinary americans second they're never the villains there's no there's no conspiracy theory that jack yo was the murderer it wasn't that wasn't the belief in the sandy hook conspiracy theory we saw ordinary Americans, the, the grieving parents, surviving children and adults, you know, other victims, relatives, um, local officials, religious leaders, um, just people, neighbors and Newtown, all of these people became villains in a plot. They, they were painted into these roles that um, were just you know, sewn out of whole cloth. They were completely made up. Um, there is a neighbor next to Sandy Hook Elementary School who took in some children who fled. And he became one of the first target of the hoaxers because he cried and was emotional um, and, you know, kind of was different in different interviews because he was crying in some and not others or whatever. And there are conspiracy theories about this guy being the head of like an inner, you know, this, of this ring that he's a FEMA official who is responsible for staging all this. He is a retired man who lives with some cats in a house next to an elementary school and was a good Samaritan and took in children. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think really distinguished Sandy Hook was that ordinary Americans, you know, were the focus and were the villains in a way we haven't seen before. And so if you go looking forward, we see that now with when we, you know, the conspiracy theories around COVID, you know, hospital workers were targeted, nurses, just people who work in the hospital, doctors trying to save people. They became the villains in the plot, you know, with conspiracies saying they were trying to kill people who they were taking care of. Um, with the big lie, we see election workers local election workers and volunteers being targeted in these grand, you know, plots to take over the government, right? Like these are, these are regular Americans in the crosshairs. And I think that's what makes them so particularly dangerous. And so I think you asked particularly about the threats that this family got, but you know, this idea that they were painted at these villains as villains mm -hmm. is really at the crux of it to use your podcast name. <laughs> you know, it, we like that. We like thank that. You. Thank you. I mean, you know, it, it, once you believe that someone has done something this heinous, right? And 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 I, and I go back to that word because I just feel like that the conspiracy theory about Sandy Hook is, is, is so heinous. It is taking people out there. They're, they're after a terrible tragedy where they are grieving an unimaginable loss. And now you're saying that they made it all up. And that maybe they were in on this plot to take away guns, that they're secret UN workers, that they're in secret plots. They're, they were, they're Satanists who are part of a, you know, pedophile cabal. Like that has all been said about these people at this worst time. And if folks who believe it, and the folks who believe it that passionately may not always be the people who created those lies, right? But then you have people who are convinced. And now they're convinced that these are terrible, terrible people. And if they would do something that terrible, that almost justifies any kind of um, action against them. And it, you know, I, I say in my article that, you know, it just kind of surprised me over the years that people acted like it wasn't inevitable that misinformation was going to lead to violence. But if you tell people for years that the government is doing these incredibly terrible acts and you point to people and say, they're the one, these people made up their child just to make you cry and to steal money from you mm -hmm. and to take away your guns. You are, you know, inciting people to take action and to stand up and um, take actual beliefs. And there's money to be made, right? So a lot of money. Right. With Alex Jones, I think in the recent trial, it was he was making eight hundred thousand dollars a day as a figure that was used. He incited these folks. He gave them a platform and he was fairly certain that this was staged. And this is a podcaster with a very large audience. Yes. Um, audience, it's hard to, to completely track how many millions of Americans follow Alex Jones, but through because he has hit so many different platforms of, you know, online and broadcasts and everything over the years. 
but he influences millions of Americans. Um, it was interesting in his trial this summer that, um, you know, he, he tried to portray himself as just one of many voices raising questions about Sandy Hook, but his platform was so much bigger than any of the other folks spreading the doubt about Sandy Hook. Now, you said something about him being certain it was staged. I have no idea if what he believes, and I, I question whether he knows what he <laughs> believes, whether he was certain in it. But he was, he was certainly willing to exploit the controversy to gain audience. And he did, especially in the early weeks, in early months um, after Sandy Hook, he hedges a lot. He'll say, I don't know, but this is compelling, and then give a, an audience to these absurd false claims and allow these, these folks to come on his show, like Wolfgang Haubig, a retired um, law enforcement officer who has, has really been um, particularly a pain to folks in, in Newtown. And he gave him a voice and a platform that he would have never had. Um, and, you know, it's all part of Jones stoking this whole worldview, right? And it's all part of this worldview of the, uh, an anti-government, um, worldview, a, a very suspicious and paranoid worldview. And he certainly exploited it for his audience, you know? Now there's another side of this story and that's the remarkable resilience of these families and Lenny Posner and uh, other Sandy Hook parents fighting back. And, you know, and I think it's interesting because as we kind of alluded to earlier, this whole world of conspiracies and particularly them being stoked by social media is, is not foreign to now companies and governments and you know, there, there was a, 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 an example where Wayfair, the furniture, the online furniture company, was said to have been trafficking children in cabinets it was shipping to customers. I wonder, are there any good lessons out of what happened at Sandy Hook as to how best to combat conspiracies and, and hoaxers? I think transparency is an important one um, and kind of, uh, you know, responding. Um, and so I'll give you two examples there. Um, the official report on the Newtown shooting didn't come out for a year, for a year. And so for a year, the speculation really just kind of festered and grew and there was no official reports that anyone could use to debunk it or counter it. And I think that that, I understand why governments are careful, and I understand why the Connecticut State Police were very careful in releasing that information to the public. But there was such an immediate clamp down response to the conspiracy theories, um, you know, to some extent, or and also to the, the media attention. You know, they started sealing records that they would ordinarily release, you know, that kind of thing. And that caused suspicious and doubt. And I, I don't think, I think it's always a good practice in the media, certainly. And it's a, a good practice for companies um, and for governments to operate with a certain transparency. Because um, at least you can stop that festering from happening, the questions that constantly are go unanswered. Um, and so, you know, I document in my story how Lenny Posner decided he was going to take this on and he was going to prove his child was real by releasing the documents that otherwise wouldn't be released. So he was really trying to prove the truth by being transparent. Um, and so I do think that responding in that way is, you know, I'm not saying that everyone should release everyone, their children's records like Lenny did, but I think that when you're talking about like a company or a government, being transparent and being open is probably a better idea, you know? And, and the other idea, I think that was more, you know, common to think around the time of the shooting than it may be now, which there was this idea that was really at play that, that this could be ignored and it would go away. Mm -hmm. If you just ignore it, if you don't feed the trolls, they will go. And there is certainly a part of that that's true. The, you know, there, there is a, a time to engage and a time not to engage with trolls. But I do think it's important for like someone who is targeted or a company that's targeted to come back and to respond, you know, to say, no, that's, well, and you, and you make a good point earlier on about how, you know, things stay on the Internet. And, 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 and so does that prompt even more thinking about, 
boy, we need to lay lay a, a track of information here so that people don't think this went unchecked. One of the things that, that sometimes debunkers will say and, um, you know, is this idea that if you if you Google something, I mean, and part of our problem, right, in the Internet age with conspiracy theories and false beliefs is that anything you could imagine, you can Google and you can find someone on the Internet who's saying the same thing. And so instead of starting with a question like trying to figure out the truth, you're starting with a preconceived notion and then you're finding that you're validating that preconceived notion through the Internet. Right. And so that happens a lot. Like was Sandy Hook staged? And then you get a blog that says Sandy Hook was staged. Right. Was Sandy Hook a hoax? And you get a blog that says the Sandy Hook hoax. Ten reasons why it was a hoax. Right. And that's what you get in back. You don't get something when you ask that question of the Internet, especially back then. You didn't get a debunking site that said, Sandy Hook was not a hoax because no one's thinking you have to do that. Um, one of the things Lenny Posner told me early when we were talking was he made that same point about the Holocaust. If you were, to, if, and, and again, the internet's changed a bit, but you know, you could have, you could easily find stuff, you know, examples of why the Holocaust didn't happen, right? The Holocaust denial out there. But there are few sites that say this is why we know the Holocaust did happen. There's people who aren't you aren't necessarily proactively countering conspiracy theories with the information online. And so I'm not saying we need to do that, but we do need to respond so that when people do look it up and they go do their their so-called internet investigation, that they can find answers. Um, so that was one of the motivations to people who started debunking the Sandy Hook hoax conspiracy theory was we need to provide another source. We need to take on these lies one at a time and explain and link to documents and prove that it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there's a whole other debate about how much debunking works and whether it works. But there certainly is, you know, a good argument that we need some basic facts out there and that people and companies and government should respond. And, you know, Amanda, you've hit on the central sort of question that Mike and I deal with in our professional lives, which is, we, we often hear, let's not do anything, it's going to go away, right? Let's not, light a, let's not light a fire. Let's not add fuel to the fire. These are very hard decisions for companies, governments, individuals. How uh, influential are these trolls? How much awareness are they going to raise? And if I, as a big company, you know, I work for GE, if I weigh in, I'm giving them exactly what they want. Right. You're giving them uh, that credibility of a, a big company name. Right. And so I, I should I should clarify that there is a moment in time to respond. And it's not always like one troll hits you and you're like, oh, we're we're not smuggling <laughs> children in furniture, exactly. I promise. But at a certain point when it's bubbling up, you need to. And so I think that it, it's hard for companies to figure out where that line is. Mm -hmm. And that is the challenge. And I think it's hard for the media, too. Mm -hmm. So one of my other critiques of the media and the coverage of the Sandy Hook shooting was in how they then covered the conspiracy theories. You know, denial was there from the beginning. You know, we're like, you can, I have pulled up the InfoWars forum. Like, you know, it, the news is just broken about the mass shooting at Sandy Hook. And there are people saying, was it staged? Is it a hoax? Look at the anomaly like, right away. This is going to be something to take away our guns. So it exists from the beginning. So I'm not saying at that moment you address something that's on the fringe. Um, and where the where I think some journalists made some poor decisions early on is that these fringe, you know, marginalized ideas existed. And yes, they're horrific and heinous and awful and they're lies and they're hurtful. But they were really on the fringe and on the margins of our of public discourse. Um, and to some extent, journalists trying to quickly debunk were taking things that people didn't know about. And then elevating them with attention. Um, I went through and, you know, traced back all these early articles that covered the nascent conspiracy theories around Sandy Hook. And they linked to the YouTube videos that they were calling out. So they would say, isn't this awful? There's a YouTube video saying the shooting was staged and you can watch this shooting right here. We're going to link to it from our major media site and drive thousands of people to it. And so we saw that exactly. happening and these co the coverage yeah. of the conspiracy theories was, you know, over the top and salacious and, and just, uh, you know, it, we were, it was call outs and we were just elevating them in the attention economy. Um, and, 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 you know, 
clearly we've all learned how the attention economy works more in the last decade. And so I, you know, I, I don't fully blame those particular journalists because we didn't know, but that is what we did. Journalists linked directly to the blogs. Um, I use an example in my story that, you know, Anderson Cooper had interviewed a whole bunch of, of families and, and he certainly, um, his interview with Veronique Posner became kind of the basis of some of the conspiracy theories because there was a, a glitch in the video that Alex Jones pointed out and kept saying it was a fake video. Um, and, and he was rightfully outraged at this denial. But there was a professor in Florida who was a tenured professor at a public university. Um, and Anderson Cooper went after him on his show. And we're within just a couple weeks from the shooting at this point. And he named him and I've interviewed people who watched that broadcast and thought, these ideas seem interesting, went directly to that professor's website and started researching the Sandy Hook hoax. And so the media certainly needs to be cognizant of when we elevate something like this, when we address misinformation, we have to be very careful that we're not introducing it to new audiences. And so I think, you know, for PR, for a corporation, it's the same sort of thing. Are you introducing an idea to a new audience by responding? Or is it already out there in your audience and you need to address it? And so figuring out that line is extremely hard, but I think that's kind of the key. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, the uh, you've alluded to, you've mentioned uh, January 6th and the events in, in Washington, D.C., and I know you've written on it. You've written on uh, the Sarah Palin uh, defamation case against the New York Times. Mm -hmm. When it comes to dealing with and combating conspiracies around politics, are the rules any different? Well, I think that how we're seeing them be elevated by mainstream figures is the problem. I don't know how we counter a president of the United States or a senator or a congressperson who is willing to stoop to this level and promote these kinds of lies. And we need to demand better of our government leaders. We need to demand that they, you know, adhere to reality, that they, <laughs> that they have a respect for the idea of an objective reality. Um, and it is really incumbent on the American people to reject that kind of, um, the kind of demagogues who are willing to lie to their face about what is real and what is not. And I think that's where we've seen this crescendo in conspiracy theories over the last decade. I, I was struck when I was tracing, you know, the, the growth of the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory. The 2010 Republican nominee for attorney general in Connecticut was among many mainstream establishment figures who shared a early YouTube video denying the shooting happened on Facebook. And, you know, she was a Connecticut official who launched a campaign for governor the next cycle. Um, you know, it was that, that kind of thing is, you know, we need to demand more of our public servants. I certainly don't have a solution to how we do that. But um, when we get to politics, it becomes more dangerous. And we saw that on January 6th, because now you have people who are your leaders who are supposed to know better who are supposed to know whether the government has a deep state operatives or not, right? Um, and they're leading the charge of these lies. And I think that's our undoing. In his intro, Gary mentioned that you're writing a book, uh, working titled Truth for the Dead. What message or learnings do you hope people who read the book will take away from it? I think there's a lesson in how we got here. Uh, and that's what I, I tried to do in the Globe series and then I'll try to do in the book as well, which is, you know, these things are all tied together. And I think we have um, foolishly ignored the connections. It's just not a one-off that a fourth of the Americans, you know, denied the Sandy Hook shooting. And we can't pretend like that's somehow disconnected from the fact that we have endless mass shootings in this country. These are connected. And this, this road, all these factors intertwine to bring us to where we are. And, and so I think I said the phrase earlier, but I, it's kind of how I've been thinking about the book, which is examining these kind of dual crises. Because I do think that, that we're in a crisis moment for misinformation, but we also are with gun violence. And the two are undeniably linked. Um, and I think that we, we too often 
put these things in, in their own place and say that COVID denial is this thing over here and it's not connected to the big lie or it's not connected to mass shooting denial. Um, but they are all part of the same kind of growing belief of American population that has a big chunk of our, of our country is really not literate when it comes to media. Um, they don't have a, a good grasp of history. They really don't know how to vet sources or information. Um, they have little understanding of how government works, um, and they're willing to believe anything that supports their preconceived notions. Um, and, and, and that's a, that's a crisis that we as a country have not addressed. You look back, uh, Finland started a, a national kind of training program in news literacy to try to combat conspiracy theories almost a decade ago. We've really not addressed it in any kind of meaningful way. We only in recent years have seen social media platforms even consider that it's their job to address this. Well, Amanda, this has been terrific. Amanda, by the way, do you have a website address that we could direct people to, to for your writing and um, other things? I do have my university website that lists my recent publications. So it's a, my UConn journalism faculty site um, has recent links. But my Twitter is Amanda J. Crawford on Twitter. So that's a good way to follow me. Amanda, thank you for being on The Crux. Please read this article in The Globe. Uh, I think it's compelling and important. And thank you again for this, really. It was a great, great discussion and for the work you're doing. Uh, when's the book, by the way, due? <laughs> or shouldn't I ask a writer that question? Yeah, let, let's skip that for right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the book is uh, in progress, but um, you know, I, I felt like with the Alex Jones trial and the anniversary of the shooting that I wanted to publish something substantial. And so I'll, I'll see how the book evolves from here. Okay, so, so well, thanks for listening to The Crux. And if you like this show, please be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening to The Crux. Our producer is Boston University student Anna Huynh. This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, or COM as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, COM is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash com.